be reading this morning from Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Exodus 1, 1. God's word says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too mighty and too many for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with the hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and set them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love my church. I love being here with uh, so many people who would allow me to go through the book of Exodus uh, there's not many churches that would be enthusiastic about that, um, but this is one of them. But I, I, can't, uh, I can't tell you how much warfare happens between Monday morning when I open up my Bible to read the text I'm going to preach, and to the time that it actually makes it up here in the sermon sitting on the platform, and I'm ready to give it to you. And the reality is, is that the battle's not over yet. Uh, there are still enemies and the enemy right now that wants anything but for you to hear the message that your king has for you today. And so I'm just going to ask you to take this moment with me and just take a brief moment to pause and pray. Pray for me uh, as I deal with warfare in my own way here. Um, and pray for yourself as you deal with warfare. There's so many thoughts, so many desires, so many temptations, so many things that are drawing and dragging at you to not listen and not to hear the word of hope and the word of the gospel from Exodus this morning. So if you'll just take a a brief moment with me, and let's just pray for each other and pray that God's message is delivered effectively to his people. Let's pray. Father God, you are the God of hope, of peace, of life, of love, of justice, of mercy, You're the God over bitterness and the God of blessing. Father, at this moment, I pray against the enemy who wants to pluck up the seed that is about to be thrown. Father God, will you till the ground and make it good? Father, will you make my hand steady as I throw the seed? God, both me as the preacher and these people as the listeners are absolutely 100% dependent on your spirit to receive anything out of this. And Father, if I rely on my communication skills, if I rely on my tones and my volume and my manuscript, God, it will fall flat to the ground. If these people rely on their Bible knowledge, if they 
uh, cannot get beyond the agenda for the next week, if they can't get beyond what's going to happen after church, Father, it will not be received. And so, God, right now, I just pray that you will blow up all hindrances and prove at this moment that you are indeed the great I am and bring us the gospel from Exodus. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, in June of this year, the Washington Times published an article entitled Human Rights Disaster, China's Persecution of Christians at Highest Level Since Mao. Just, just think about how big that is. That's, since Mao Zedong took over China, Christians have never been persecuted as much as they are right now. The article begins, Watchdog groups say... The persecution of Christians and other religious minorities in China is at its all at its most intense since the Cultural Revolution, as churches are shuttered, Bibles confiscated, and believers arrested at rates not seen in decades. The article went on to quote Bob Fu, the founder and president of China Aid. Fu claimed that in 2017 there was no less, get this, no less than 1,265 churches, not people, 1,265 churches that had received persecution in some form. That affects more than 220,000 people affected by persecution this year. Adding to the horror of the nationwide crackdown, Fu asserted that at least 3,700 believers had been arrested for their faith, and most of them were sent to re-education camps. Now, most of the persecution that's happened in China, you guys know I have a history with China. Um, I used to live there. My wife and I were missionaries there, and I've seen this. Christianity is on the rise. Christianity is growing. Believers are coming to Jesus because the gospel is powerful and it is threatening China's society to its core. And so people shake. People are fearful. People make laws. People shutter the churches, confiscate the Bibles, arrest the Christians. And yet, yet, Chinese believers are still growing. This is right on the hills of 2017, this is right on the heels of the mass persecution that we dealt with in 2016 in the Middle East. If you read the newspapers and you are are familiar with some of these articles that came out, the New York Post uh, came out with an article saying Christianity is being driven out of the Middle East. The New York Times, this great uh, reliable newspaper sh- source that we uh, so often refer-, refer to says, is this the end of Christianity in the Middle East? And then you have something like the UK-based The Telegraph, which comes out with an article, and it's entitled, Christianity Close to Extinction in the Middle East. I mean, this is the world that we live in, where China, Syria, Egypt, Libya, uh, the, the, the Congo parts of Africa, where Mass numbers of Christians are being slaughtered because they are growing too fast. The multiplication is happening. And yet, despite the enslavement of Christians, the murder of Christians in the Middle East, despite the oppressive crackdowns in China, Christianity has not gone extinct. In fact, the more they shed blood, the more seed they spread for the gospel. It's amazing. The same people who were beheading Christians in Syria are now sitting in churches reading the Bible and believing in Jesus because the gospel is powerful. In God's sovereignty, the bitterness of oppression does not hinder God's promises of blessing. In fact, the bitterness of oppression and opposition and of struggling and of suffering sets the backdrop so that it will highlight the brilliance, the brightness of God's blessing. Now, this is good news for us as Christians in the American West, as we watch our own marginalization. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in here that would not say that we are not being pushed to the sidelines as a church and as people who have a voice. We're being pushed aside, and yet we can know, just like our Chinese brothers and sisters, just like the Syrian Christians who lose their head, that God's promises march on. 
There has never been a time that Christians can know and appreciate what the Israelite slaves felt in Egypt. If you want the best context for Egyptian slavery, you can think about us and in the context that we live in. You can think about this growing marginalization, this oppression, this hostility that continues to grow and rage against God's people. And here's what you'll see when you think of it in this context. God's blessing doesn't come in the absence of bitterness. God's blessing crashes head on collision into your bitterness. It infiltrates it. It takes it over. It conquers it. The blessings of God, the promise of God comes in the midst of, by way of, through your sufferings, through your bitterness. This is where the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong. They think you will be blessed when you don't have bitterness. But Exodus 1 and 2 says very plainly, God's blessing expounds. It blows up in bitterness. I hope this is going to be incredible hope for you because I don't know what bitter situation you might be in as a believer. There are some of you in here that may be going through the bitterness of health issues. There's some of you in here that might actually feel some of that oppression in your job, and your workplaces. There might be some of you in here that have the bitterness of having to deal with a, a family member that is so staunch against the gospel and it just makes life hard. My friends, I want to tell you today, and as Exodus 1 and 2 is going to show us, God's blessing will come and is coming through your suffering. Let's just set the context. The book of Exodus, if you were here for our overview sermon, you got to, you got to walk through the entire book, but we are, we do need to set the context for this first verse. You see it begins with a list of names. These are the sons of Israel who came out, uh, of, of the promised land and to Egypt with Jacob. Now it's important to see that Exodus assumes you know what happened in Genesis. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't expound. It uses these characters' names, and they're in Egypt somehow, and it just assumes that you know what happened, which hopefully now you know why we went through Genesis first and not Exodus first, because you have to know who Jacob is. You have to know who Joseph is and how he came to Egypt. You have to remember what Joseph's last words to his kin were. What were they? God will surely visit you and bring you out of Egypt. That was his last words to his people. And when he brings you out, take my body with you. There's an anticipation that Genesis leaves us with that Exodus picks up and assumes you already know what's going on in God's big scheme. You already know what God's planning I mean, even the words kind of in, in verse 17 or in verse 7 pick up this bigger story. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Do you not hear Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Do you not hear God's promises to Abraham uh, that he, he would become a great nation and his children would be as numerous as the stars and they would fill the land? That's the context that we're meant to read in Exodus. You cannot read Exodus if you do not know the promises of God that he has given in Genesis. You cannot read Exodus unless you understand the covenant relationship that he has with his people to end their bitterness, not just of slavery, but of sin. To bring them back to the garden where he will dwell with them forever. To where they'll be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth just the way he intended. Being images of God who image him to, their, to his glory and will spread his image throughout all the earth. But it's also important to understand where this context is because when we look at what Pharaoh's doing in these first two, three chapters, first 15 chapters maybe, it begins to make sense what he's actually doing. There's a deeper drama happening in Exodus than just Pharaoh as a king of Egypt. There's a cosmic battle happening. What Israel was doing, expanding and multiplying, goes all the way back to Genesis 1, goes back to Genesis 6 with Noah, to Genesis 9 with Noah, and it goes back to Abraham. This is God's work among his people. He is spreading, he is spreading them out. 
He is causing them to multiply. He is keeping his promises. Their multiplication, their fruitfulness, their expansion is his will, his promise, his plan. And not just for them, but for the redemption of the entire earth. They have to spread. They have to multiply. Why? So that the whole earth will be filled with people who will bless the nations. Abraham's children will bless the nations in this way. So it's God's work. Now that means when Pharaoh sets out to oppose that expansion, who is he opposing? Not just Israel. He's not just picking on a people group. He's fighting against God. And that's where the ominous tone picks up in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now this new king marks a whole new Egypt. This is a new setting. This is not the same nice, kind, happy-go-lucky Egypt that loved Joseph and his people. And we're so thankful for the, the blessing that he brought and the salvation he brought from their starvation. This is a whole new Egypt that is forgetting about that with a new king who chooses not to even acknowledge it. And you're going to see that in his, in his moments of sin, he starts to set himself up as not the friend and ally of God's people, but as an enemy, an opposer of God. Here's what he says in verses 9 and 10. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now just, God meant for this to be a blessing. This is 12. You will bless the nations. He meant this to be a blessing. Pharaoh here sees their multiplication and their expansion, and he thinks this is bad. It's not a blessing. This is bad. Same way that China thinks of Christians growing. That is good for them. But no, it's bad. we got to end it. That's where Pharaoh's at at this point, where he sees all these Hebrews in his land and doesn't see the blessing, but sees it as a bad thing. Here's what he says. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. There's a couple of key things. Guys, we've got to be sensitive Bible readers. That means we have to pay attention. How many of us ever watched a Bourne movie without remembering what happened in the first two movies? I mean, you just can't, right? Imagine watching Lord of the Rings, the third part of it, and not knowing that there's even a ring, right? I mean, it just, you can't do it. When you're in a series of story, you have to know what's going on. So you have to be sensitive that, to what's happened before. What is Pharaoh doing? My friends, here's one of the most profound things I think I found in Exodus 1. Pharaoh is an Egyptian babble builder. Have you heard the words, come, let us? And then they... Propose something that's absolutely against God's will before. Listen to what the builders of Babel said in Genesis 11. Come, same there, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed. By the way, lest we be dispersed according to God's will which wants us to fill the earth. So you have Pharaoh taking on the very same words, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And what he's saying there is, come, let's take up what our Babylonian forefathers did and let's build an Egyptian tower with brick and mortar on the backs of God's people. It's the same thing over again. Now that should indicate something. What happened to the builders of Babel when they said that? God came down. And it didn't happen. There's a little indicator here. Pharaoh setting himself up like a builder of Babel. And as sensitive Bible readers, we're left chuckling. (laughs) Yeah, that'll work out for you. Right? And so as we're reading this, we begin to see where Pharaoh's actually standing in. He's dealing shrewdly, just like the serpent did. His shrewdness matches the serpent's craftiness in Genesis 3. And just like the serpent sought to undermine God's plan, so now... Pharaoh's wanting to undermine and oppose God's plan for his people. Pharaoh is just a visible symbol of the serpent's invisible opposition against God. He's a visible symbol of an invisible warfare that's happening between the serpent and God. So they follow Pharaoh's orders, and they afflict the Hebrews, and they force them to build store cities. Verse 13 says that they dealt ruthlessly with them. They made their lives bitter with service. Now, it's difficult to imagine a more, 
a more depressive state for God's people. These were the people that Joseph once wore a crown on his head. Egyptian dignitaries bowed to him. He was second in command. The people of Israel once walked the courts of the king. They were dignitaries in Egyptian, uh, in, in the Egyptian nation. And now we see these dignitaries reduced down to brick builders. They go from Pharaoh's courts to Pharaoh's pits, to the mud. And I just want you to imagine what slavery in Egypt would have looked like. I, I did some research on the history of how the Egyptians did slavery. Imagine skin burnt and cracked day after day because they don't have SPF 50 sunscreen. And you're in the middle of the desert building bricks. Skin dry and cracked because of the merciless sun. Your hands are gnarled and bent because you have to place this mud in the mold, make sure it fits the mold, put the mold out into the sun, and then you have to work those dry, cracked, gnarly fingers in between the wood mold and the brick to bring out the brick. And so you scratch and you cut and your hands are bleeding and bruised. You've got aching muscles that are permanently knotted. There's no masseuses in Egypt. It's not like they can, hey, come sit down in this chair and let's work that knot out and that tension out. No, it's twisted muscles from carrying the same burdens. Carrying, not pulling, not dragging. Carrying bricks day after day. Scarred, stinging backs that have been so toughened and weathered by the rods of Egyptian slave masters. Having the everyday knowledge when you watch your kids play, knowing that they will never grow up to be anything more than brick building slaves. Can you, that, that to me, when I think about that, grabs my heart. To just know that my children will not get to grow up and become an astronaut. My children will not get to grow up and become school teachers or missionaries or anything like that. That they're going to have to build bricks and be beat just like I've been beat. Day after day. This is bitter. Bitter situation. Now, from an external perspective, this doesn't look like blessing at all, does it? This isn't blessing. This is bitterness. This is hardship. This is hurt. This is pain. But in the midst of their bitterness and buried deep in the context of their suffering, you read verse 12. It's buried deep in there. You have to read carefully to see it. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You you hear that? God's keeping his promise. They're becoming a great nation. They're multiplying. The redemptive plan is marching forward. But how? He's using the pressure of bitterness to crush them down so they spread them out. It's amazing. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. This is God's rolling rolling pin. That's spreading out the dough across Egypt. The bitterness of slavery. Pharaoh wanted to deal shrewdly with them, but the bitterness of slavery did not do one thing to hinder their multiplication. Not one thing. And I think Pharaoh sees this. And seeing that his oppression failed to curb their multiplication, Pharaoh turned up the heat a bit. Here's what it says in verses 15 to 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives one of whom was named Sifra and the other named Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the burstal, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, he shall, uh, she shall live. Now, Pharaoh's opposition has become violent now. He's not the first one to do this, and he's not going to be the last. If you read the Bible well and you read it as one big story, you know, in Genesis and Revelation 12, you have this dragon that's sitting at the, like, on the birth stool, waiting for the woman to give birth to the child, and he's just waiting to devour it. And we find out this is like Satan's work. We see guys, uh, doing this, like, uh, we have Pharaoh here, we have Herod doing it later. Um, even before that in the Old Testament, you have the queen of Israel who's not rightfully there trying to wipe out the Davidic line. I mean, this is the dragon waiting for the child to be born so that they could swallow it up and end God's plan. Now, I just want to paint the, In Egypt, Pharaoh is a god. Okay? In Egypt, Pharaoh is a god. We don't have that mindset here in America. We don't think of our president as a god. But imagine actually believing and thinking that your world leader 
And the, the guy who's probably the most powerful man in all the earth is actually God incarnate. And that his word is firm, solid. Now, as we're reading this, being good story readers, good, good narrative readers, we're like, that's it. This is over. <laughs> he's gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna be fearful. They're gonna obey him. This is how he's gonna do it. He's gonna kill off the babies. Just like that. It's in story over. But, that's not what happened. It says, but the midwives, in verse 17, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, it's interesting. All, this, all the times that you see the word Pharaoh, we still don't know which Pharaoh it actually was because his name's not recorded. Because in Exodus, it's not important. Because mighty Pharaoh is, is hindered and thwarted by these humble midwives, Sifra and Pua. We know their names forever. We don't know who in the world this Pharaoh was. Why? Because he's been humble. He's been broken. He's been forgotten. Mighty Pharaoh, God of the earth, has just been brought to his knees by obedient, faithful midwives. We remember their names. They're memorialized forever because of their obedience and their faithfulness. Why? Because they feared God. Not because they feared Pharaoh, but because they feared God. I just, I think about the sovereign plan of God. You know, God could have, and God says this later on to the future Pharaoh, that he could have given him a plague and wiped him out like that. He could, God, God could have done anything. God could have caused an earthquake in Egypt and Pharaoh would have died. He could have caused Pharaoh to die in his sleep. But instead, God likes the humor of us watching these poor, humble Hebrew midwives bring this worldwide God to his knees. Listen to what it says. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. He presses and he presses and time again. He thinks slavery will end the multiplication. It doesn't. It makes it worse. He thinks, okay, I'm going to send the midwives. And the midwives, surely they'll fear me. They'll listen to me. Don't they know I'm Pharaoh? And the midwives disobey and obey God instead. And the people grow time and time again. This mighty God, Pharaoh, is being broken, embarrassed, and humbled. As God uses the bitterness that Pharaoh pours out as a means to progress his plan. This is the wisdom of God in this. This is just amazing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of good chess players at our, at our church, but the best ones, Ben Brown, Jeff Wofford, I think there were two of them. Um, they don't, they could, you know, you just know that they could beat you just by one attack move. But instead, they draw you in, right? And you make the move, and every time you begin to pick up your piece, they start to chuckle a little bit. <laughs> and you realize no matter where you move the piece, you've already fallen for the trap. You're going to get beat. And because they don't just want to beat you, they're humiliating you. God doesn't just want to beat King Pharaoh. God wants Pharaoh to realize who's the true God. That's what he wants. That's why he uses midwives. Midwives. Just think, midwives. Midwives who should be trembling under Pharaoh. Pharaoh told me to do this. And they don't. They they stand firm on the promises of God and they stand firm in obedience and faithfulness and they fear God and God blesses them for that. And because of Pharaoh's increased persecution and increased opposition, the people grow. Blessing in bitterness. Blessing because of bitterness. Blessing through bitterness. I can imagine Pharaoh's pretty frustrated at this point. And he sees that the people continue to multiply. They're, gro- they're growing. I enslaved them. I told the midwives to kill their baby boys. And they're still growing. So what does he do? Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people... Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. This is it. It's no more left in the hands of midwives. He's telling his people to actively go out, hunt down and search, and kick in the doors and take these babies and throw them into the Nile. That's a 
horrifying picture to think about of thousands, hundreds of thousands possibly, of babies being tossed into the Nile day after day after day. Can you imagine the violence? I can't even fathom the heartbreak of watching what this would have been like to see babies. I can. I mean, we have the abortion clinics all over the United States. But can you imagine watching us baby after baby being thrown into the Nile? You're thinking, that's it. God's plan is over. Is Pharaoh won. And that's where Exodus 1 tells us no. No, he's not one. Chapter 2 opens with the marriage of a Levite couple. Verse 2 says, The woman conceived and bore a son. Again, if you're a sensitive Bible reader, anytime you hear the words, the woman conceived and bore a son, you're like, this is it. Big move in redemptive history right here. Right? Because it happens again when Jesus is born, right? The woman conceived and bore a what? A son. This is God's little tracking marker that his plan is moving forward. Pharaoh declares war on Hebrew baby boys. The woman conceives, bore a son, and the birth of this son marks a massive step forward in God's redemptive plan. Now, um, I, I just think it's cool when we think about we're always waiting for a son, right? In, in these movements of his, we're always waiting for the birth of a son. Always waiting for our redemption to happen. Always waiting for the snake crusher to come. And throughout Exodus, as we begin reading and watching this warfare between God and Pharaoh, it's always, it's always because God's people, God uses the faithfulness of his people to do battle with warfare. These weak, enslaved, humble, and broken people, God uses in incredible ways to do battle against them. Here in, in the last chapter, we had the midwives, poor, humble. I, I can imagine um, uh, these, these women who were small, frail. I mean, these were midwives. You, you wouldn't think much of them compared to the mighty, muscular Pharaoh on his throne. But now in chapter 3, we have a new faithful woman. It's Moses' mother. Again, Pharaoh's thwarted all over again because of a faithful Hebrew slave woman who doesn't stand by passively and say, well, Pharaoh wants to kill my baby, so I'll just cry and watch. No, she actively hides him for three months. It says in verses uh, three and four, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the bank of the river. Now, this is just faith at its finest. She would rather hand the baby over to the sovereignty of God. Um, if you if you are an um, animal nerd like me, you know what rests at the bottom of the Nile, right? It's the what? Nile crocodile, right? The coolest animal ever, I think. Also the most terrifying. Um, I used to have thoughts that they would eat me in my bathtub. Um, so she would rather... Put her baby in the basket. Trust the sovereignty of God to save her baby from the basket leaking and sinking. From a crocodile taking a you know curious bite at what that is. A hippo somehow marching. A, a boat coming by. One of Pharaoh's henchmen finding the baby. She would rather trust God and actively put her baby into the hands of God than to submissively watch and, and passively disobey God. Watch Pharaoh as Pharaoh uh, allows him to be thrown into the Nile. This is faith at its finest. This is, this is what faith looks like. When pressed between a rock and a hard place, you always choose faith in God. When pressed between your, your death and death, you always look to God. That's what she does, and she looks to God. And this is an amazing irony. Pharaoh is this mighty, threatening God of the Egyptian empire. There are dignities that are quaking underneath him and bowing before him. And these ladies, the midwives and Moses' mother, are disobeying him and constantly frustrating his plan to kill God's people. And then just in this sweet, God's an amazing, amazing story maker. In this sweet irony, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, draws him out, raises him in her house. I just, I, the details that are in Exodus are always important. Because it's, it's not just the fact that God saved the baby, it's how he saved the baby. And I, I couldn't help but chuckle out loud when I was, when I was reading through this and realizing that Pharaoh, the one who wanted to throw the babies into the river, his daughter has pity on the baby. 
takes him up, adopts him as his son, names him Moses. I drew him out. Why? Because God's going to draw out his people out of Egypt. I mean, all of this is just irony upon irony upon irony that this mighty Pharaoh is humbled again and again and again by unexpected means. And God's promises continue to go and grow and they blow past Pharaoh. As you read Exodus 1 and 2, there's no question who is the more powerful God. Pharaoh thinks he's a God. And time and time and again, he's frustrated. The God of the Hebrews is the only one who's never frustrated. The God of the Hebrews is the only one who's never thwarted. No king, no God, no serpent can stop God's plan. God wins always. Just think of how uplifting that is to say that. Think of all the oppression that our people face as Christians. Think of all the bitterness that there are believers over in China and Syria and Egypt right now that are going through incredibly horrific things. And they can say, just as much as you and I can say, God wins always. God wins always. Even with increased bitterness, let the oppression pour. Let the persecution come. Let the opposition pour out on God's people. And yet God will still grow his promises in the midst of that blessing, the, in the midst of that bitterness. Bitterness is the incubator for God's blessing in this. It's the thing that causes it to hatch and grow strong. I think at this point, as someone who wants to study for my own application, it's a clear warning to me, don't be Pharaoh. Like even in the small things, don't think that you can change the plan and purposes of God. Don't fight against God. We as children of God, as people of God, must be for God because you know what? You have no hope to stand against him. It's not for or against God. There's just people who are for him. Everyone else is dead. <laughs> In judgment. I mean, that's the reality of it. You either are for God and his victory and in his promises and you trust him or you're goner. That's it. There's no for or against. It's only for. Pharaoh is going to be a goner. We don't even know his name. He's forgotten. Because when God blows past his opposition, there's nothing left. Now, uh, if I would have listened to most other uh, others who break up this text, and we would have stopped there. We'd have made a few applications. But I actually think that the next part of the story where Moses is exiled belongs in the same camp as this story. So we're going to go there. Chapter 1 was amazing in the fact that it constantly is saying, Pharaoh's not God, Pharaoh's not God. God's blessing and bitterness grows with all of his schemes and all of his plots and all of his hatred. He cannot thwart the promises of God. And this section goes even further. Not only can the enemies of God not hinder his plan and promises, not even our own bitter situation can hinder God's promises. Something even as bad and as nasty as exile is unable to hinder God. Moses was saved. You guys know the story. Moses was saved, but his troubles weren't over. He goes out as a Hebrew. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us he finds out uh, that he's a Hebrew and he decides to align himself with uh, his people. And so he goes out to see their affliction and he sees an Egyptian beating one of his people. So he looks around and some think that he looks around because he's looking to see who's watching. I think he's looking around to see if anyone's going to intervene. No one does. So who does? He does. He goes and he beats the uh, Egyptian. Instead of just beating him, though, he actually kills him. And then he buries his body in the sand. Now, the next day, Moses is coming out. And he sees these two fellow Hebrews feuding together. And he, he comes to him and tells him, why are you, why are you striking each other? Why, why are you doing this? And one of the Hebrews smarts back at him, who made you a prince or judge over us? Now that's ironic because God actually was making Moses a judge over his people. Who made you a prince or judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now, this is a prince of Egypt. I mean, he could have, stupid Hebrew, <laughs> you know, wiped him out of the way. It's, and just as a side note, Stephen points to this and wants you to pay attention to this. Stephen, the martyr in Acts says, hey, listen, this is a foretaste. 
God's people are always fighting against God's leaders. Listen to this. This is what happened. You know, that, that Israel hated Moses from the beginning, you know. So he just, he wants you to pay attention to that. That's going to be important when we get to Exodus 12, uh, when the people begin to grumble against Moses, because it started all the way back here before he even rose up as a leader. But all that, at any rate, Moses finds out he's found out, fears for his life, rightfully so. Pharaoh wants to, uh, he's fearing for his life, rightfully so. Because Pharaoh actually does want to kill him, and Pharaoh sought him to kill him, and Moses is forced to run to Midian. Now, surely that's the end of God's promises, right? I mean, sure, God beat Pharaoh multiple times over in Exodus 1, but how can he deliver Israel when the deliverer is in exile? He's gone. He can't even go back to Egypt. He's in Midian. The hero of the story is out of the picture. Well, the story's not over because Moses isn't the hero of the story. This is just a minor delay and not a delay for God, just a delay in Moses' life. When you get to verses 15 to 22, it proves that even Moses' bad situation was not enough to hinder God's promises for his people. Verse 15, it says very profoundly, he came to Midian and he sat down by a well. Again, as just telling you, I'm a nerdy, nerdy reader, so I, I really pay attention to detail. This is significant. God does amazing things at wells. In the Bible, God does amazing things at wells. And just to teach you how to read the Bible, think about when was the last time someone feared for their life who was a covenant child of God and God's promises were going to come from him, who feared for their life, fled in exile, went to a well, met their wife there, and God's promises continued on. Jacob. It's the same story cycled back over. Jacob uh, uh, cheats his brother, and his brother gets so mad, he says, I'm going to kill him. Jacob's forced to run. And so we're thinking, how can God's blessing and God's promise come to Jacob if he's on the run, if he's in exile, he goes to a well in exile, sits down by the well. Uh, there's a there's a lid on top of the well, and he's the one that rolls it over and basically does this uh, conflict with the stone, in a sense, to make sure that his, his father-in-law's flocks can get watered. He waters the flocks, meets a girl, and gets married. And the whole point of that story in Genesis 29 is that God is keeping his promises even in Jacob's exile. It hasn't brought an end to the story. Now, again, it just says careful Bible readers. We have to ask, why is Moses at a well? Why does he water Jethro's flocks? Why is it significant that it tells us that he married Zipporah? Because it's in the character, indicator that what happened in Genesis 29 is about to happen again. Guess who Jacob met in his exile? He met God. That whole wrestling with God thing where Jacob learns the name of God, that's significant because that same thing's about to happen again at the burning bush. There's a wrestling with God. Who am I? I made man's mouth. I mean, you got this massive tussle between Moses and God. They're virtually wrestling. And God says, Moses is like, don't send me, send somebody else. And God wrestles him to the ground. Who made man's mouth? Was it not I? Now go. And he learns the name of God. Now this is the point next to this. Circumstances have never, ever distanced us from the promises of God. Never, ever. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all sojourners in a land not their own. And all of them experienced the providential, caring, loving hand of God even in their exile. Now, how significant is it that Moses calls himself a sojourner in a foreign land? He's basically saying, I am the same as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same thing's going to happen. God's 
promises. Now, whether Moses knew that or not, I don't know. But I know that the, Moses is writing Exodus, probably. I think Moses is sitting here saying, listen, you need to be listening to these little tonal marks that are setting the pace. God didn't forsake Abraham. God didn't forsake the sojourner Isaac. He didn't forsake the sojourner Jacob. He will not forsake the sojourner Moses. And thus, he will not forsake Israel. And therefore, Christian, he will not forsake you. God's hearts are for sojourners. Is it any irony then that Peter would say to the elect exiles and sojourners? Exodus is cool. I've really been trying to work on my tone, bring it back a bit. We should have studied Ecclesiastes. Now, just bringing it home, just for application's sake. You may not be persecuted, but you are marginalized. If you lived in America, you live in America. You are a margin. We need to wake up and realize what what's true of us. We are a, we are being marginalized. We're being kind of silenced in different ways. I hear a lot of people they mourn that. A lot of people are sad. You know, we live in a world that doesn't that doesn't obey God, and and the whole Bible is saying, "Are you surprised?" We, we, we learn of new legislation and new problems and new societal issues. And there's another riot and there are people who hate what we say and can't stand it and breathe threats out against us. And we're despairing over that. And Exodus 1 and 2 says, wait a second, this has all happened before. And the more they press, the more you spread. Why are you so discouraged and distraught? Praise God we live in a godless America because God's name might actually be made known now. Because the more that it's pressed, the more that there's oppression, the more that there's signs, the louder God's blessing in the gospel gets. As someone who's been to China, China is fighting a losing battle. They have shut down churches, and with every church that they shut down, they shut down a thousand, what was it, a thousand two hundred and something churches last year. And every day, a couple more dozen wake up. The Middle East is fighting a losing battle. With every Christian's head that's lopped off, with every Christian that's tied up in slavery, what they end up finding is the person that holds the handcuffs and the person that holds the scimitar or the sword or whatever else that they have ends up becoming a believer. My friends, we are more powerful in our bitterness and in our death than when we are in our prosperity. Do you realize that? Prosperity silences the church. Bitterness makes it louder. There's a reason why Christians in China are so powerful, so threatening to the, to, to the modern day Mao himself. It's because they are increasingly very strong and are multiplying. You don't see that same thing happening here much, do you? I mean, when was the last time that you saw just gobs of people hearing the faith and seeing you as you're being drug out of your house and coming to you afterwards and asking you, how do you have such peace when they're dragging your family by the hair? My friends, don't mourn your bitter situations. Don't mourn the bitter oppression. Relish it, because it's in that suffering that God's blessing is made known to everybody else. We are pressed But we are not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, cast down, but not destroyed. Isn't that a beautiful message? There are some of you who are bitter right now. Bitter problems with families. Bitter problems with things going on with your body. Sickness, illness, disease, pain, turmoil. The Apostle Paul says, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Listen to this. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love, has, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. My friends, whatever Midian you may currently be in, whatever exile you may currently be going through, it may be problems with child bear, childbearing, it may be ch- problems with child rearing, um, it may be problems with your job, it may be health issues. You may have a thousand and one kidney stones this year and have absolutely no idea why, but the reality is, is God's promised blessing is being Uh, being perfected and being given even through those sufferings, even through those problems, even through that bitterness. God's blessing is coming and has already come in amazingly profound ways because God will not be defeated by serpents or situations. God wins Always, And if you want proof of this, if you want to know the whole point of Exodus 1 and 2, it's simply the cross. If you want proof that blessing comes in the midst of bitterness, look at Jesus Christ. The nails were bitter. They gave him bitter gall to drink. The crown was bitter. The cross and the splinters were bitter. The whip, a cat of nine tails, was bitter. It is bitterness at its worst. It's hard to imagine a more bitter situation than watching the perfect, beautiful Son of God bruised and crushed and bloodied. And yet, that is how, not just in spite of, but because of, your blessing has come to you. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, eternal life in the presence of God, the immense promises of God that wasn't given because of prosperity, that was given because of a man's suffering. My friends, your blessing comes on the back, on the shoulders, and in the hands of bitterness. Praise God. It's immensely encouraging to me. And I hope it's immensely encouraging to you. I'm going to make a request for Moises to play Great I Am maybe one more time. I'm calling an audible. Um, when When we sat down and made a plan for what we were going to sing, Great I Am was definitely on the list because you can't read Exodus without reading Great I Am or singing Great I Am. How much more powerful now that you've heard God's not scared or defeated by your serpents and situations, can you sing this song even better? So here's what I hope. I hope this place is is loud. I hope that we sing from our hearts, not because of, of musical instruments being right, not because of the volume being right, but because there's a God who keeps his promises and who is continuing to keep his promise, even in whatever situation and bitter, bitter state that you may be in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for answering your prayer, our prayer. God, thank you for making your word known. Father, even though I have not done it perfectly, God, I trust that you will bear fruit. Father, may these people know that in their bitterness, in their oppression, in their opposition, Father, God, in whatever circumstances that that may uh, come to them, Lord, whether it's health, whether it's uh, hardship, depression, whatever, Father, I pray that you will make it known to them that you are with them, you are for them, you are fighting for them, and your promises will not be defeated. You are the God of blessing, and you will bring us back to your place, just as you promised. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.